Good morning, Calvary. Welcome to church. My name is uh, Mark Johnson. Uh, if you haven't, if I haven't met you yet, and I'm an intern here. I'm actually in my last semester of seminary, and uh, an internship is required. And you guys have been generous, as well as Pastor Peter, to engage me in this. And, and I've really been appreciative this last couple of months. So, I worked in corporate America for 32 years before before this, and I saw interns come and interns go. And you know, they were 20 nothing, they were healthy, they didn't need medicinal help. <laughs> I just turned 60, and I take this. <laughs> For those of you who are 50 and under, this improves memory. It healthy brain function, sharper mind, and clearer thinking. And yes, I buy the chewable version, one less, <laughs> one less pill to, to swallow. So you, you, can, you, you can, on your own accord, decide if it worked or not today by the time we get done with the sermon. But I, for my part, have written down every word I think I need to say today, so just in case it doesn't work. So it really has been a great couple of months and a, and a blessing, a pleasure, and an honor to be part of your congregation and your community, and uh, so, uh, and, and today, for the opportunity to speak with you. So, we just finished a two-part series in Nehemiah 3, where we saw the Israelites working together to build the city's wall. Today, we're discussing chapter 5, to see how the people deal with internal strife. For any who are concerned, we have not abandoned our expository approach to the Bible, that is going chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but both chapters four and six talk about external uh, strife or difficulty uh, that the Israelites have, and so th those will be discussed together next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I just ask that you would take this time and uh, you would lead, guide, and direct all the things that I say, Lord, and you would just... Uh, have the hearts and the minds, Lord, um, of your people be moved to become more like the image of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, I did a simple internet search on inequity in America. Here's a partial list of what I found. Wage and wealth inequity, homelessness, education inequity, gender pay inequity, gender inequity at top jobs racial inequity, discrimination, poverty, residential inequity, health access inequity, discouraged workers, intergenerational income mobility, or the ability for kids to have better jobs than their parents, inequity for immigrants, and inequity for the incarcerated. The list goes on, and we all recognize it because these are the items that fill our news headlines when we're not at war. There are many reasons and factors that have resulted in the society arriving here, but as Christians, we know the real culprit. The lack of morality and the moral leadership has infiltrated our culture and threatens to destroy it. For every civilization before us, moral decay has led to its fall. A culture does not die in a day, but due to a million tiny cuts that ultimately destroy the foundation that unified it. Today in Nehemiah, we find a similar circumstance. The nation of Israel is not facing difficulties from outside, 
but is experiencing internal difficulties that threaten at least the rebuilding work, but possibly its existence. I'm not sure that anybody asked, but I'm attending a Baptist seminary. As such, I'm required by all that is Baptist to provide a three-point outline. <laughs> so today, I've titled our discussion, Proper Perspective Within God's Family, and I've broken that down into three different sections. Proper perspective of the perspective of the poor, the perspective of the blessed, and the perspective of leadership. Let's uh, go to the text and read the first five verses. We're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax for our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already become enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I didn't write this down, so I'll mess this up. But was anybody else intimidated in chapter 3 when Peter read that? He was going through all those names. I, I couldn't even read as fast as he was talking, so... I'm, as I was reading that, I was thinking, wow, I could, if only I could read like Peter, it would be so much better. Anyway, slide. Let's see. So we're going to start with the perspective of the poor. Perspective of the poor. There's actually three categories of people that we're going to discuss and three problems that are contributing to their situation. First, however, I want to direct you to your attention to the very first sentence where we are told there arose a great outcry. The Hebrew word here translated outcry is used only one other time in the scriptures, and that's in Exodus 3, when the Israelites were slaves under Egyptian oppression. Although the Israelites in our text today were not physically enslaved, their plight and hope for relief were just as significant as if they were. There are three groups of people who contribute to the outcry. The first group is presumably laborers who are described as not having enough grain for their families, and their only solution seems to be that it needed to be given to them. The second group are landowners who are having to mortgage their assets to keep up with the financial demands of their household. The final group discussed are the families who had to give up their children as indentured servants. The implication that some of the daughters had already been enslaved is that they were exposed either to sexual abuse or had already been married off to Gentile overlords. These three people groups likely represent the vast majority of the nation. The outcry is definitely not a small minority that could be in some circumstances, put off until the rebuilding work was done. The text provides two explicit reasons and one implicit one to help us find the context for their position. First, as we see, there's a famine in the land. This was likely exacerbated by the fact that the surrounding communities were not happy with the rebuilding and were probably sanctioning Israel for their perceived bad behavior. Whatever the exact circumstances, we know what happens when a commodity becomes scarce and the, the price goes up. You will have to bear with me and use your imagination as this is an ancient concept and no longer happens in our contemporary culture. Gasoline. Grain inflation was moving the poverty line up well into the middle class. 
The second reason we see for, in the text for their situation is the requirement of the king's tax. No, they were not slaves, but they had been conquered, and they're required to pay, pay tribute to the king. The Babylonians had taxed real estate, and the Persians continued the same practice. Darius had instructed a tax on the past harvest plus a present yield. In the time of Artaxerxes, taxation was heavy throughout the Persian Empire. The Persians were so proficient at taxing and collecting taxes that when Alexander the Great conquered them, he found more than 270 tons of gold and 1,200 tons of silver in the treasury. Heavy taxation is a form of socioeconomic oppression, and in this way, the people were still slaves. The third issue that contributed to the poor situation was the rebuilding of the wall. The family members who were there were not in the fields making money or tending to their own fields. This economic burden on the working class was unbearable, and even if they had assets to mortgage, there was no hope of repayment. This situation might again be compounded by the fact it appears to be around harvest time when all debts and taxes are due. This was the perspective of the poor. Now let's turn to the perspective of the blessed. Based upon the size of the group we just discussed, the blessed group might be better characterized as the nobles or the elite or the rich. I'm not gonna read the text first because it gives Nehemiah's view of these nobles. It's a realistic outside view of the world, but I doubt that they saw it that way. I wanna step back and imagine how they saw it using the information that's in the text. Sadly, doing this exercise makes me realize that their perspective seems very familiar, if not personal. And maybe you will be challenged too. First, the nobles have been redeeming fellow Jews who were indentured servants from the neighboring Gentile towns and cities. This is obviously God's work and worthy of praise. Secondly, the nobles, with the exceptions noted in chapter three, are participating in the rebuilding work of the wall. Again, this is God's work worthy to be praised. Finally, the nobles are providing financing for the community for economic prosperity. This is the work that the law prescribes in its kingdom work. They're doing everything right and investing for the economic benefit of the community. As we read the text, the nobles are scolded for exacting interest, which is not allowed. In the Hebrew, though, there's some doubt whether the nobles are indeed charging interest or the allowable prescribed fee. Because when a loan was made back then, the collateral was generally given over to the lender. He could then use the asset to his benefit. If the lender did not take possession of the collateral, then the borrower would pay an agreed upon fee for the lender's loss of use. It seems a bit of a loophole to the contemporary ear, but let's give the nobles the benefit of the doubt and say that they are doing everything properly within their legal rights and obligations. They were good, doing God's work, and worthy of praise. Now, short sidebar. Hermeneutics, or the study of interpretation as it relates to the Bible, has a tenet regarding ancient text. That is, the interpreter should strive to identify the meaning of the passage as it was intended by the original author to the original reader. Seems simple and straightforward. However, for us today, we must bridge different uh, differences in time, culture, language, and literary genres. I'm going to take a short break in, to discuss this cultural bridge that we need to cross as we read and understand this passage. 
The ancient Israelites did not exist within a Western culture as we do today, but were part of a collectivist culture which was different priorities and values than what we have. I'm going to quote a definition of the collectivist culture that I gleaned off a web search. Collectivist cultures emphasize the needs and goals of the group as a whole over the needs and desires of each individual. In such cultures, relationships with other members of the group and the interconnectedness between people play a central role in each person's identity. The same site then went on to list the traits of a collectivist culture that include the following. Individuals define themselves in relationship to others. An example, I am a member of blank. Communication is often more indirect to avoid potential conflict and embarrassment. Group loyalty is encouraged. Decisions are based on what is best for the group. Compromise is favored when a decision needs to be made to achieve greater levels of peace. Working as a group and supporting others is essential. Greater emphasis is placed on common goals than on individuals' pursuits. And the rights of families and communities come before those of the individual. This seems very foreign to us. A different culture, a difficult culture to understand and embrace as it relates to their values and priorities. One thing, however, that is helpful for us to remember is that God made a covenant with Abraham, but it wasn't just Abraham, the man, but a community in which he resided. God's covenant was for a people group who would be part of his community that would share with God's values and God's priorities. That was always God's plan, and it still is today. As we turn back to the text, remember this, to cross this cultural bridge and understand it in that context. So let's return to the text, and we're going to read uh, verses 6 through 13, again, chapter 5. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest on each of your, his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and a percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Well, now you understand why I had to stand back from the text to identify the perspective of the nobles, as the text is very critical of, their, of them and their behavior. As I discussed before, I doubt they felt that way until they were called out by Nehemiah. So now is the time for a pop quiz. I'm sure you heard this one before, but I'm going to give you a hint. The answer is not hate. So here we go. What is the opposite of love? I didn't hear a lot of... What's, 
Go to the next slide. I think I heard it. It's indifference. The opposite of love is indifference. So love is to be engaged and active in someone's life. Indifference lacks any concern or engagement at all. We've all seen children act up for attention. At some level, they don't care if it's attention based upon love, irritation, or disgust. They will take the attention however they can get it. Indifference gives no attention. It ignores. It assesses others to be of no consequence and no value. This is the sin of the nobles. Such behavior would be judged poorly in today's society, but since we've crossed that cultural bridge to understand their collectivist society, we can truly understand why Nehemiah was so passionate in his response and why the corrective action seemed so severe. So let's turn to the third point, which is the perspective of leadership. The very first thing we see is that Nehemiah was angry. It was a righteous anger against the injustices that were occurring within the community. This divide in the culture risked the completion of the rebuilding project, but potentially it could escalate into something much worse. The last king of the 12 tribes of Israel was Rehoboam, son of Solomon. He took counsel from his young friends who told him to increase the almost unbearable tax that Solomon had imposed. This was the same type of social mistreatment we see in Nehemiah, and that act was the last straw that caused the 10 tribes to secede and crown Jeroboam the king. Ephesians 4 tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is the call from God. Division is a tool of the enemy. All we have to do is turn on the TV to see the enemy's division sown in our culture today. It is also obvious how the division can fracture and destroy the fabric of society. When we see division, especially in a church, we should recognize it as a spiritual battle and engage it immediately as Nehemiah did. Hey, Julie, would you get me a Kleenex? I got Prevagen apparently makes your nose run. I don't know what, what's going on there, but need a little help so I don't snort up the whole time here. Oh, thank you. I got one. Thank you. Ah, appreciate that. The next item we see in the text is Nehemiah took counsel with himself. This appears to mimic his actions in chapter 1 when he is faced with the news that the city and temple continue to be in ruins. He refuses to be reflexive, but wants to turn his time of correction, this time of correction, into a learning opportunity, a spiritual step, as it were. So Nehemiah is three for three in the book so far as encountering highly emotional situations. If I were to give a personal example at this point, it, it wouldn't be three for three. It really wouldn't be two for two. One in a row is my longest streak in 60 years for such situations. Two characteristics that Paul uses to define the fruit of the Spirit are patience, self-control. Nehemiah has proven himself to be a man filled with the Spirit and God's wisdom. Nehemiah then uses a couple of verses to set up the circumstances. Then verse 9, the charges are against the nobles. Not sure why I didn't do a slide for this. I don't know if you know, you know, corporate America, this is a pitch. I got more slides than I do words probably, but this one's not on here. I got three charges that Nehemiah made to the nobles. 
doing something that's not right, acting in ways that were not appropriate for those who loved God, and three, losing the witness of the neighboring nations. Let's spend a moment on each of these. So Nehemiah tells the creditors what they're doing is not right. Earlier I gave this group the benefit of the doubt and noted everything they were doing was legal. And I'll continue to do that, though you're welcome to take the other side. The point I want to make is that one's legal rights can cause oppression and be morally wrong in God's sight. Often Christians do not realize how serious and sinful indirect oppression can be. Nehemiah's statement, what you're doing is not right, is an example of how a leader can assume the role of moral teacher. God is definitely concerned about the individual and his relationship with each of us, but he is just as concerned about his community, the church. Nehemiah recognizes this and provides the correct charge against his creditors, even if they were legally compliant. The second charge that the nobles were acting in ways that were not appropriate for those who fear God. We know that God wants our heart, and if we surrender it to him, we can, put pat, we can look past our noses and recognize others in the broader community for what it is and how it may be struggling. The Bible commands us to love. It never demands us or even suggests that we should strive to be right. Believe me. If it did, my life would be a whole lot easier as I find myself being defensive and trying to hold my ground. But God calls us to love instead, especially where his people are concerned. We should be loving one another and be united despite our differences and sometimes despite our individual rights. The last charge Nehemiah lies on lays to the nobles is a terrible witness this injustice had represented in neighboring countries. They were acting just like everybody else. We're just glad it doesn't happen today in, in today's contemporary times. We are, you know, all of us here can come up with a dozen examples of how Christians, when I say Christian, I mean me, fail to differentiate themselves from social norms and human nature's impulses. There's statistically no difference between Christians and non-Christians in the rates of divorce, giving, abortion, adultery, the list goes on and on. It's curious that God has given the greatest gift of time and eternity, but decided to use the worst marketing strategy ever, using humans and their almost infinite list of imperfections. There's only one reason God does this, and that is to prove that all successes are due to him his power, and his faithfulness. The great commandment tells us to love God and to love others. When we fail, it impacts not only ourselves, but those who are watching and potentially their eternal destination. Nehemiah recognizes double failure and rightfully charged the nobles. As Nehemiah finishes charging the nobles, he tells us he too has been lending money. Again, he's probably well within his legal rights to do this, but effectively he self-condemns the behavior. Nehemiah is genuine and open. I don't think I'll characterize it as anti-politician. He's right to charge the others, and he could have quietly changed his own records, but confesses his perfections to the entire community. The cliche that comes to mind is that God doesn't call the equipped, but equips the called. Nehemiah is not perfect. He did not claim to be. 
He was called and projected a humility to God and those he led, which defines true obedience for the Christian. In verse 11, Nehemiah provides a solution. He enacts the practice of the year of Jubilee. This celebration occurred every 49 to 50 years, which represented seven periods of seven years in which economic debts were to be forgiven, land restored to families who sold it in order to repay debt, and slaves sold to repay debt were to be liberated. This may seem odd, but Jubilee was instituted so that all the property and people groups were returned to the allocated provisions God gave each tribe once Israel had conquered the promised land. Resources in Nehemiah's time had been allocated outside God's plan and also needed to be reset. I looked through several commentaries on this passage in preparation for this message. I don't know if that's obvious or not. Probably not. But uh, each one noted great surprise when in verse 12 the nobles agreed that the conditions, to the conditions set out as Nehemiah. The group of nobles laid down their rights and made a tremendous sacrifice for the nation's benefit. It was most definitely not driven by human nature, but represented the movement of God's spirit through the hearts of the people. The perspective of the blessed had changed to become the proper perspective of the blessed. The last item in this part of this scripture tells us the punishment of those who do not abide by their commitment. Nehemiah shakes out his robe and empties it. In those times, men wore long robes, and for items they needed to keep with them, they would, put, they would fold them into the robe and the clothing, and they'd cinch it with a belt. This was the way everything they needed or everything they thought valuable would be safe and available. Shaking it out represented the loss of everything one needed and thought valuable. There was no tolerance for anything but full satisfaction of the noble's commitment, and all their possessions or, or all their possessions would be forfeited. There's one more component of the leadership perspective, and we'll find that in today's reading, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who had been before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work of the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, that all I have done for this people. So our final perspective of leadership is, includes sacrificing, participating in the work, and pursuing the good of the community instead of enriching oneself. Nehemiah had sacrificed by giving up the loans due him, not invoking the tax authority he had the right to, and paying the significant official business expenses from his own personal funds. He did this to the benefit of the community in crisis as he worked alongside them. So, some may feel a little misled because I finished my three-point sermon. 
So you might find yourself thinking, wow, that's a short sermon, and it made a boring sermon bearable. <laughs> You're going to be very disappointed, as now I want to discuss the application of these biblical principles for us today here at Calvary. You won't be surprised to know this also comes in a three-point format. <laughs> here it is. How do we find our proper perspective here today? First, we need to focus on the need of the body. Second, we need to focus on loving. And third, we need to focus on God's kingdom, not ours. Focus on the body. I'm going to dig in there one more time here. Working really good today. I don't know if my nose. My, I don't know what's going on. All right. Focus on the body. The biblical truth from today's lesson is that God's community defines our priorities and determines our identities. God's community defines our priorities and determines our identities. We are blessed to live in the United States. God has shown us tremendous favor in terms of individual freedoms and economic prosperity. I believe that's due to the fact that our founders used biblical principles to build the fabric of our society. And even if that structure has been good for our society, it is in no way does it describe God's plan and structure for his church. The church isn't a bunch of individuals running around generally in the same direction any more than Peter's example a couple weeks ago with a mannequin over here and his arm over here and they're all kind of going wherever. God's plan for his church, the bride, of Christ is a collective structure. Let me repeat the definition I gave earlier. Collectivist cultures emphasize the need and goals of the group as a whole over the needs and desires of each individual. In such cultures, relationships with other members of the group and the interconnectedness between people play a central role in each person's identity." Unquote. Look at God's people and our story today. Let's remember the early Jerusalem church in Acts 2, living and sharing together. And what about Christ's ministry? He lived in a community that was driven by his father's plan, and he was the greatest human example of how to lay down your individual rights for the benefit of the community. This is the type of community we are called to today. My life and engagement in this community does not meet that standard, and I hope that the Spirit is challenging you to recognize how he wants you to change your engagement as well. Another point when focusing on the body is that we saw Nehemiah is that we can't get distracted by good kingdom work that we are doing at the expense of the body. The discipleship hour has been a good addition to Calvary's community and I know it will provide kingdom benefits. There are plans to expand ministry to the lost and hurting and that too will be blessed by God. We need to recognize that while we are busy doing good kingdom work, the enemy will also be busy making our lives difficult, throwing discord and division among us. We know obedience to God brings a resistance, and we should recognize this as a spiritual battle it is, and anticipate it or react to it accordingly. Let us practice putting our community before ourselves and the priority of our work so that we can do every, our work together that God has called us with the correct focus and the proper perspective. The next application is to focus on loving. The biblical principle here is that love is active, engaged, and generous. 
Love is active, engaged, and generous. Let's start with the opposite, indifference. Have you ever been, or are you currently indifferent to Calvary's vision, its mission, or anyone in its community? If so, let me repeat Nehemiah's charge. The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? I am not looking to condemn you, but to challenge you toward the standard that God has given us. What is that charge, some of you may ask? How about the great commandment? The great commandment tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. Nope, that's a standard for our neighbor, not our brother. God records in his gospel Jesus' statement, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Our charge is to love Christ's bride like he loves it. Since he loves us more than we love ourselves, it's a higher standard than that of the great commandment. And by the way, it's kind of impossible. We, we have to remember that God is changing us into the image of his son, which is perfect in every way. This change includes loving others. Our charge is to ask the Spirit to accomplish that work in our lives. All we have to do is surrender. Loving others can come in very tangible ways. Nehemiah forgave loans, didn't tax the people as he could have, and self-funded the operations of the government. God gave him resources intended to help others. When has God given you, what has God given you that, has, that he intended for others. Here's a fact for which I'm certain. He has given you something that is intended for someone else. This something can include your time, your talent, your resources. My first Sunday here, a couple months ago, Peter was preaching in James and the topic was money. So here's Mark's 100,000 foot summary of that sermon. The money God gives you, it's a spiritual test. Do you trust God for your provision? If you do, then by definition, you don't trust money and will hold it loosely for God to bless others through you. Let God bless others through your time, your talent, and your resources. The third set of applications is to focus on his kingdom. The biblical principle in this section is to pursue God's kingdom to the detriment of your kingdom. Let's pursue God's kingdom to the detriment of your kingdom. There could be 20 examples of this principle that come from our story today, but I'll focus on two that are relevant to my journey. The first is to identify where our counsel comes from. Nehemiah took counsel from himself. Peter has already taught us how Nehemiah paused with prayer and fasting the first time and then acted quickly when the Spirit led him in the second time. How do you grade yourself for managing conflict in your life? Are you a Nehemiah, or are you quick to answer? Are you defensive? Conflict is always the enemy's effort to distract from what God wants us to do. Let's commit today to recognize conflict as an opportunity to surrender the situation to God and ask for his guidance and wisdom for a resolution. Our human nature and collectivist priorities tend to cause us to focus on things that hardly ever get past our nose. Any issue outside that parameter is brought up generally only to complain about or whine. This is the uh, same perspective and focus the nobles had in our story. 
This will not shock anyone who knows me, but I have a personal example to, to share. And I found myself looking at my circumstances from my kingdom's perspective. As I've already stated, I'm going to seminary, and I plan to graduate in May if I pass my internship. So if you guys can put a good word in for me, I appreciate it. <laughs> the academic endeavor was not my plan, but a result of being laid off from my job. After quitting a half-hearted job search, I realized that my life would be school for the next two and a half years. My mind immediately went crazy trying to figure out how we're going to make this work financially. I obviously put my wife to work, her first job, outside the house for 25 years. I then was trying to figure out housing after we sold our house. You know, that was going to be a critical step. We, there's no way we could afford our house. This was back in 2019, and the housing market was still very depressed. Said differently, the market value of my home that we lived in for 17 years was worth less than I had paid for it. Figuring out my kingdom consumed me. One day at home, I was alone studying, and this anxiety was very high, and I was very frustrated. In a moment, I finally surrendered my spirit, and I gave the problem to God. I said, just take it. I can't deal with this. And almost immediately, I felt the calmness, and it became clear to me a financial path that would allow us to stay in our house. He showed me his provision for this season in our family's life. In the midst of this tremendous spiritual moment of victory, I did what I do best. I asked God how I was supposed to live on that financial path, as it was significantly less than what I was used to. A word to the wise. When God shows you where to go and how to do it, the incorrect response is, really? <laughs> God knows I'm stupid. So almost immediately, it almost seemed like it was audible, I could hear him ask me, how much is enough? Nehemiah didn't tax the people for what he was due him. He forgave the loans that people owed him and funded the people's business with his personal funds. In purely human terms, Nehemiah's life could have been better. But he made available his time, talent, and resources for God's purposes. He was loving God by supporting God's kingdom. I challenge you today to take inventory of your time, talent, and resources. Look at how much goes to your kingdom, how much goes to his kingdom, and then ask yourself, how much is enough? Focusing on God's kingdom gives you an urgency for him and his purposes and a contentment in your kingdom. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. For everyone who can hear my voice, you've been called to Calvary Church for this season for his purposes. You have a unique and critical part to play in this body. Calvary cannot accomplish the fullness of his vision without your participation for what he has called you to do. From today's passage, you should engage in a real community. Don't be distracted, especially as you're doing kingdom work. Love actively. Seek God's counsel and hold loosely your time, talent, and resources. If these concepts seem a little subjective and you're wondering how to tactically implement them, I wanted to bring back a slide that uh, uh, 
Peter had used the last couple of weeks, and it's a, it's a wall that they're rebuilding, and we talked about the sheep gate at the top. That is Israel's back in Nehemiah's day. And the next slide is Calvary's ministry in 2022. If you remember, Nehemiah, they were building a wall so they could rebuild the temple so they could start worshiping God. This is Calvary's ministry in 2022. And we always started at the sheep gate, which was up there at the top right, which seemed to be a very important gate. So I put the most important ministry I could think of up there. So that's coffee. <laughs> and then I went around, and you can see all the different things I put. And somehow, I don't know if you guys remember, right there where it says interns, that's the dung gate. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how that happened. But I, I want to challenge you today that you're on here. You're supposed to be part of this team. You're part of rebuilding the ministry here at Calvary. And if you wonder how to do it, go to calvaryefc.com, click on the icon that says build a body, and there's a list of opportunities and see where God is calling you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this community at Calvary. We are thankful for your vision that you've cast among us. We ask for your blessing on this ministry and that each one that he, that's here tonight will hear your call and find their place in your work in this life here at Calvary. Just like Nehemiah, we consecrate that work to you and ask all for this in your name, we pray, and for your glory. Amen.